Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. We continue our study in the book of 2 Corinthians. Today we want to look at chapter 7, cover the whole chapter, although we talked about verse 1 kind of as a conclusion to uh, what we saw on chapter 6. <clears throat> it's also, a, I think, in somewhat a transition to chapter, the rest of the chapter beginning in verse 2 mostly today. As with much of 2 Corinthians, it's somewhat hard to teach in an organized manner because he's not teaching doctrine so much, um, nor is he giving a list of admonitions to do. It's, it's kind of like you're reading someone else's mail. In fact, we are reading someone else's mail. <laughs> Paul writing to the Corinthians, <clears throat> but he's writing on a very personal way is what I mean. So that we see a lot of emotion, we see a lot of personal references, and especially in today's message, we just see a lot of expressions of love, even though I don't think the word love is mentioned in our passage at all. You'll see it, you'll feel it, and I don't think that the passage teaches us any particular theology or doctrine or really tells us anything to do. It just opens up a glimpse of Paul's heart and the heart of the Corinthians and their relationship. So I would say that what we're going to see today is tough love. If uh, I think. Our idea here is that tough love wins. You know, tough love is when you're honest with someone in a, in a loving way, tell them what they need to hear. And sometimes parents have to show tough love towards their children, or you have to show tough love towards a friend who's heading, heading in the wrong direction. And uh, that's what we see, I think, today. So just as a re reminder, Paul had talked to them about separating themselves from evil. And I think he has in mind the temple worship in chapter 6 and the sexual practices that went along with that. It's one of the things he had to confront in 1 Corinthians. And um, I think he reinforces that in chapter 6 here in 2 Corinthians. And he ends <clears throat> that section, at least we ended it, in uh, chapter 7, verse 1, uh, because it seems to be drawing a conclusion when it says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit and perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The promises that God would be with those who um, separate from evil. And as they do, they will be perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So they will become more holy, which is, of course, God's goal for us. And I, I think it may introduce our passage today because the holiness uh, is not only separation from evil practices, but holiness also involves healthiness. You know, we talk about holistic medicine today. We're talking about uh, uh, approach to overall wellness. And so he wants them to be holy, not just in their practices of what they do and they don't do, as far as temple worship and sexual issues, 
He wants them to be holy or healthy and complete and also their personal relationships. And that's what, beginning in verse 2, that's what the whole chapter is about, just a personal relationship that we're looking into. So we don't expect to see doctrine taught here, but what we see, even though it's not mentioned, is, is a great love for Corinthian people. And, um, and that's really the purpose of the letter, as I remind you, is that he wants, he's writing to them to defend his apostleship against those who accuse him of being a false apostle, but also to renew his relationship with the Corinthians. So, beginning in verses 2, I'll just read 2 through 4 to start with. He says, Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. Just read through 2 through 4. This expression, open your hearts to us, um, is just an appeal for their affection. Other translations, some of the more popular and uh, newer translations read, make room in your hearts for us. And he's claiming here that his He's innocent towards them, that he didn't wrong anybody, he didn't corrupt anybody, even though he was, had to be firm with them in his first letter to them, and, and uh, in his second visit, which is called the sorrowful visit sometimes, he was firm towards them. Uh, he still didn't do them any wrong or cheat them in any way. But he's appealing for them to have their open hearts towards him. Um, and he says he's not saying this to condemn them. So Paul's not scolding them or trying to shame them in any way. Uh, in fact, he says, uh, you, we're bonded together uh, to die together and live together. Uh, that's, that's our mutual commitment to one another is to have this uh, unconditional love towards one another where you would even die or live together. Kind of reminds us of earlier in chapter 5 when he talked about how Paul talked about he was dying on the outside, but his death meant life for them. But um, they were in, intimately involved in living together and, in his case, even dying on their behalf. So he's not being vindictive about their former response to him, which evidently was a negative response to his first letter and there were still critics there. He's not being vindictive and trying to, to uh, shame them in any way, uh, but just remind them and appeal for their love. Open your hearts to us. And uh, he's not bitter, I think is what he's showing. Uh, but he's speaking to them boldly, he says in verse 4, and because he's confident about what their reaction is going to be. And um, he's filled with comfort, he says. Now, you remember that one of the issues at the beginning of the epistle was that he was comforted by his meeting with Titus, who brought a good report about the Corinthians' response to his last letter. And 
He talked about being comforted by Titus, and God comforts those who need comforting, and so forth. So he's filled with comfort here, and he's going to explain why. And he's just exceedingly joyful, even though he's going through tribulation, he says, which kind of suffering we're not sure of which he's referring to, but we know that Paul was always under some kind of persecution and had trouble wherever he went. And so he's referring to those things as his tribulation, and yet in the midst of all that, he, he has a source of comfort. And uh, it, earlier in the book, uh, if you were to look back, and we, I won't go there, but in chapter 2, like in verse 13, he expressed how much anxiety he had about Titus's absence. When Titus was gone and he went to Troas and Titus wasn't there, and he finally met up with him in Macedonia, and that this is where he found such great comfort. But until then, he was very anxious. So, it was a great relief for him to meet Titus, as we'll see as we go on here. So Paul had a great concern for them, and we see that in verses 2 through 4 when he appeals for them to open their hearts. Now here's an explanation in verse 5 where he shows, he kind of gives evidence of why he was concerned for them and how he's concerned for them. He describes his response when he hears Titus's report about their good response to his previous letter. Now, the previous letter could refer to, as we read on, well, some people think it means 1 Corinthians, and some people think that there was a lost letter in between 1 and 2 Corinthians. Uh, it really doesn't matter as to what we understand from the passage and their relationship. But here's how he describes his response. Let's look at first verse 5 through 7. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was com comforted in you, comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Now when Paul talks about needing... <laughs> With Titus here, he's picking up the discussion that he dropped. He left in chapter 2 where he described his meeting with Titus and how much joy and comfort it brought him. So in between chapter 2 and here, there's been a discussion about uh, the nature of uh, the New Covenant ministry. But now he's picking up this personal note about his meeting with Titus where he had left off before. He had been anxious and full of fears. In fact, he describes himself as even being downcast. Uh, that's interesting, isn't it, that we could picture the Apostle Paul as being uh, anxious and downcast about something. But he was a human, and we're all human. And even though we may be victorious over our anxieties and our worries, uh, we, we still have to sometimes admit that, yeah, I'm kind of concerned about that. A little bit worried about that, you know. Uh, we just choose to live on the side of victory, but we have to confront the reality that sometimes we do get down down about things. Paul got down about his expectation that is Titus going to bring a good report or not, and uh, and he was wondering about that. But then when he met him, uh, there was great consolation or comfort 
in that for him, he says in verse 7. Um, because what Titus told him was about their earnest desire. I think uh, earnest desire refers to their, um, their desire to restore relationship with Paul. And their mourning, I think the mourning probably refers to their sorrow for the way they had reacted before. And their zeal for him, they, I, they immediately wanted to restore the relationship. They were zealous about restoring the relationship with Paul. And your earnest desire, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. So that kind of report from Titus, that they were so eager to restore the relationship with Paul, made Paul rejoice even more than he had by seeing Titus and just getting a good report. It was a good report with an emphasis that, hey, the Corinthian church really does want to restore their relationship with you. And they feel bad about what they've, how they've treated you. And, and they can't wait to get back in fellowship with you. It's kind of the message I see here. So their, their report really gave Paul great consolation and comfort. Um, and then he heard about their repentance. And so in verses 8 to 13, first part of 13, he addresses that. He says, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Now, Paul, when he wrote that letter, something, again, 1 Corinthians, some think it was a lost letter he's referring to here. He says, and the commentators are divided on that, and it really doesn't matter which issue as far as the practical concerns here. But he says, I did regret it, but I, I don't regret it now. In other, in other words, he, he probably regretted his harsh tone or his real confrontational tone in that letter. But since they responded well to it, he doesn't really regret it. So you probably had to anticipate saying things or say things with people to people that you might have felt harsh saying and you maybe regretted it and maybe with good cause but maybe people responded to it and you said well you know i guess i did the right thing after all he goes on for i perceive that the same epistle made you sorry though only for a while so their first reaction was to kind of grieve that paul had written them in such a way but it didn't last long because they repented of their wrongdoing. He says in verse 9, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. And Paul's not happy about the fact that they were sorry and felt bad about their actions towards him, but he's happy that their sorrow led them to repentance. It got them thinking about their actions, and so they had a change of mind uh, towards Paul. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. Um, they were made sorry in a godly manner or in, in the way that God intended um, the letter and the way Paul intended the letter to make them feel sorry. And uh, He didn't want to make them feel guilty. He wanted to just talk about the wrongdoing and hopefully that they would repent. Um, he explains in verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to re be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces flesh. So he's contrasting godly sorrow with sorrow of the world. 
godly sorrow would be when we understand the truth, when we understand what we've done is wrong, and we own up to it, um, we confess it uh, to God, we admit it to others, we seek their forgiveness and restoration of the relationship, that would be a godly sorrow. I think a worldly sorrow would be, well, I'm sorry I got caught. You know, a lot of times you see on TV, public officials, celebrities, whatever, they do something wrong, and they don't really offer the kind of apology you think they should. They're really saying, well, I'm sorry you misunderstood me, or I'm sorry I was misunderstood, or I'm sorry you had to see that. In other words, I'm sorry I got caught but they're not apologizing for their action. That's, that would be a worldly sorrow. That doesn't do anything or accomplish anything. But what is a godly sorrow does, it produces repentance, which is a change of mind, a, a change of heart, I like to say also, because heart and mind are used interchangeably in the New Testament, an inner change, a new inner orientation. So godly sorrow produces this inner change that leads to salvation. Now, what does he mean by salvation here? Because he's talking to the Corinthians. He knows they're saved. He addresses them as saved, sanctified, justified. And uh, in uh, chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he never doubts their salvation. So he knows that they're saved. So their repentance leads to salvation. Well, the word salvation, you probably know, doesn't always refer to eternal salvation. The word basically means deliverance from something. And I think what, they're, what he intends here is, is to say that because you changed your mind towards me, it delivered you from being in that position of being wrong, being guilty, um, being deceived by the false apostles. They were delivered from their present situation because they came to the truth, they acknowledged their error, they repented, they changed their mind. Some people think that salvation here refers to deliverance at the judgment seat of Christ also. Uh, I think actually it could because, in, in a sense, they're related because if we change our mind about what we're doing on this earth and uh, we are delivered out and that delivers us from a bad situation, well, that same repentance is also going to deliver us from any negative consequences at the judgment seat of Christ. So you could see it as one or the other kind of deliverance, or uh, both and. And I, I kind of see a both and, that they were delivered from their present difficult situation, which will result also in their deliverance in the future from any negative consequences at the judgment seat of Christ. But on the other hand, he talks about the, the sorrow of the world produces death. It leads us down a path of spiritual deadness, dullness, separation from one another. That's what death really refers to. And, and it could produce, ultimately, death if a person keeps going down a path of error in their thinking, error in their, therefore error in their practices. It often leads to practices that result in death. Sometimes when we go down a path of sin and rebellion or bitterness, uh, people will try to cover that with drinking or drugs or um, something, some other immoral behavior. And that can lead to an early death. So um, death, again, can be seen as a spiritual deadness, but a spiritual deadness, if you persist in those practices, can lead to physical death. The Bible does teach there is a sin unto death. 
So um, he goes on in verse 11. For observe this very thing that you started in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. So when Paul saw that they repented and changed their minds towards him, um, it produced uh, a lot of benefits for them. They, they cleared themselves, he says. Um, there's no more indignation towards him or him, uh, no reason for any indignation, uh, no reason to fear, to fear him, his presence, or his visits. It gave them a vehement desire to do what is right and to renew his, their relationship with Paul. And, 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 all, and they proved themselves or they vindicated themselves to be clear in this matter meaning that they, they proved, they did the right thing to correct the conflict. Um, now, it could be also that when he speaks of uh, their indignation or their kind of upset anger, it could be that he's not, they're not, re he's not referring to their indignation towards him, Paul, but some believe their indignation towards the sinning brother in Corinth or the, the ones who are, causing problems in Corinth. We were told of a sinning brother in 1 Corinthians 5 who was having immoral relationships with his stepmother, evidently. And he could be talking about them being restored to him, or it could be that he's talking about some unknown person in the group who has been really criti criticizing Paul, and uh, Paul would have probably run into him in his second sorrowful visit um, or that he he only mentions but doesn't describe so they could have had a conflict there but anyway they proved themselves anyway to be innocent and clear in this whole issue uh, that conflict between the him and them in 12 and 13 the beginning part of 13 therefore although i wrote to you i did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong so here, see, there is a person in mind here. He wasn't writing to address that issue. He was writing to restore his relationship to the Corinthians, but the Corinthians knew, I think, they got the feel from Paul's letter that to restore the relationship, they had to deal with this person. So is this person the one who was sinning in 1 Corinthians 5? Some people believe so. Some people believe it's somebody who was just an adversary of Paul and causing and criticizing him or making false claims about him in the church, causing a lot of trouble. But that's not what Paul was writing to them about. And uh, if he's referring especially here to his lost letter, um, he wasn't writing for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. He was writing to do exactly that, to show that he really cared for them before God in his honesty and integrity, he was showing that he really did care for them. <clears throat> that was the purpose of his writing. And you can't dispute that when you read 2 Corinthians. He's not obsessed with one person in the church. He's not writing against one person in the church. He's writing over and over again. You know, open your hearts to us. You know, um, let's be reconciled. And, and uh, he really wanted to restore the relationship. So 2 Corinthians is all about restoring that relationship. In the first part of 13, 
um, also is along that idea. Therefore, we have been comforted in your comfort. So because they have found comfort in Paul's attitude towards them, uh, he finds comfort in that. And he says that he rejoices exceedingly more for the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you. So Paul finds himself rejoicing because Titus, when they received Titus, they uh, were, were supportive of him. And he was refreshed by them. And that made Paul even happier, not just that they were accepting Paul again, but that they received his messenger and refreshed him according to Paul's language that he used. Um, they just showed their support and endearment to him. I think there's a couple things we can learn from what we've seen so far. Is the one is that we can sorrow in an ungodly manner. Um, you know, sin can lead us to sorrow sometimes uh, because we're ashamed, sometimes because uh, we have a false guilt or somebody makes us feel guilty and holds it over us. Uh, we don't really, we hide a sin, we can feel sorrowful for that. There, there's an ungodly way, but as we said, Paul is commending them for a godly sorrow that leads them to deliverance from out of that kind of trouble and mindset. And uh, another thing I think we see is that we should assume the best in people. Uh, it's amazing to me that in this passage as we read, Paul is not pointing his finger, he's not scolding, he's not shaming, but instead he's saying, open your hearts to us. He's, he's keeping communication open based on the hope and the, even the assumption that, that they would do the right thing. Oftentimes, in a relationship, we assume people are going to do the wrong thing, and they're going to respond in the wrong way, so we hesitate to confront them or to be honest with them. But that's the risk you take by being honest with people sometimes. And you're, you're nervous, you're fearful about, about how they're going to respond. But, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 says, Love hopes all things. That's one of the characteristics of love. And I think what that means is that love always assumes the best of people. And Paul, obviously, is assuming the very best of the Corinthians, that they would respond to him. Uh, and how, how hard it is to do that. I always assume that people will do the right thing. Um, a few years ago, uh, a lady who used to go to our church. This couple used to go to our church, and then they moved. And um, she called one day. She said, can I stop by for a visit? Um, and her husband's not with her. She said, I've left, I've left him, and I just want to stop by and talk. So I said, come on by. She was in the area anyway. She had driven all the way up to Fort Worth. And so she stopped by, and we talked. And she had left her husband. She felt her husband was being abusive to her um, and being mean and unreasonable and, and disrespectful and so forth. And of course, you know, every, every story has two sides. And as, as a pastor who has counseled many people, I'll take her at her word, but I always understand there's another side to it. But she was very upset about that. She had left him. And, um, and he won't talk to anybody about it, she says. But he was a friend um, and had been a friend and even after they left, we had maintained a friendship. So 
I wrote him an email and, you know, I said, I don't know what's going on. Your wife's very upset. I really think you all need to find a counselor and try to work things out. And, you know, I'm always willing to talk to you too. Uh, but, but you should do something. You're the, you're the husband. You should take the lead and do something. Uh, I don't know the situation, but she's very upset about, about it. And, you know, I wasn't accusing him of anything, but that's not the kind of letter somebody wants to get, you know. And so I'm wondering, is he going to be, how is he going to respond to this? Is he going to respond to it? Would he still be a friend? Would he still be friendly towards me? Well, I never heard from him. I didn't hear from him for years. And um, I didn't know, I, I didn't want to contact her and get in the middle of it. And so I just left it as it was and with some prayer and so forth. And, and then about a year and a half ago or so, I got a phone call from her. And um, she says, uh, my, husband, my husband's here. No, she just, she just said, my husband wants to know if you will do the funeral for his mother because his mother used to visit our church, and you probably knew her better than any preacher. Um, so would you do the funeral? I said, well, you know, last time I wrote your husband, I was kind of a little bit confrontational about him when you were going through that problem. I don't know how he'd respond to that, you know? And then she said, well, actually, he's listening right here on the phone, <laughs> on the car phone. So, and then he pipes up and he says, Oh, that's just water under the bridge. You know, everything is fine now. It's like, <laughs> I, was, I was quite relieved at that and comforted by that. Um, what I anticipated, you know, would be somebody who would really take up uh, and get angry with me, take up a cause against me. It's water under the bridge. Everything's fine now. So, okay, let's talk, let's talk about the funeral for your mother. <laughs> and we did, and we... we met at the funeral and it was like nothing had ever happened we were friendly and they were back together seeming getting along really well they're happy i'm happy i don't need to know what happened and I, I didn't go into it but i guess we're friends he invited me to come down and see him anytime so we might so love uh, would assume the best of people um it's hard to assume the best of people when you're telling them that they've maybe done something wrong and you're nervous and fearful about the response that they might have. Uh, but in this case, in the illustration I just told you about, uh, my fear was unfounded, really. And it turned out, well, I should have assumed better of him. Well, in uh, the rest of verse 13, he's talking about the encouragement that he received from uh, Titus's, their reception of Titus. And since they refreshed him, that was just good news to Paul, even better than the fact that they accepted him back. And then in verse 14, for if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I'm not ashamed. You see, Paul assumed the best of them. He even bragged about them. Um, he boasted to Titus about the Corinthians. He didn't talk behind their back bad things, but he boasted about how good they were, good people just came under a bad influence. So he assumed, I think he shows here what it means to hope all things and to assume the best for people. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. So Paul feels vindicated that his bragging about the Corinthians and how good they were and how responsive to God they were 
he was vindicated. It proved true in the way that uh, they received Titus and they received Paul back into fellowship. And then in verse 15, and his affections, Titus's affections, are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all. How with fear and trembling you received him. Now, uh, when Titus first came, the Corinthians, Paul said, received him with fear and trembling. Uh, I think that depicts a certain nervousness and anticipation of, wow, what's this guy going to tell us? What's this guy going to say Paul said? Or what's, what's the letter that he's bringing to us? Or, um, so they had that trepidation, fear and trembling. But you know that word, that phrase fear and trembling was used of Paul back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he says he first came to them in fear and trembling with the gospel. It just shows a certain um, anticipation of, well, are they going to receive it or are they going to reject it? Is this going to be easy? Is it going to be hard? And, and that's what they were thinking when Titus first appeared. They, they were wondering with fear and trembling, or was this, is this going to be a tough meeting? Is he going to lay the hammer down or what? And then evidently what they saw was that Paul was just expressing his love towards them. And so that was unnecessary to have that attitude. And so they received Titus. And then in verse 16, uh, the last verse in the chapter, Therefore I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. So Paul says, So I rejoice now because I, I have confidence in you in everything. You handled this the right way. I can continue having confidence with you. I can continue to build the relationship with you. We can continue to work together. In fact, I think what this does is it sets up the next two chapters, 8 and 9. And if you remember 2 Corinthians, chapters 8 and 9 are about giving. And Paul's appealing to them to give to the saints in Jerusalem. And he's taking a collection. And so he, he, he's saying, now I feel much better about having confidence in you. And by the way, I have confidence that you're going to give more to, to these saints in Jerusalem. And I'll send some people to collect the offering and so forth. So that, that's kind of a transitional thought, I think, into what we'll talk about maybe next time is uh, how they responded and will respond with their giving. But uh, the point uh, of the chapter is that um, Paul all along had a good attitude towards the Corinthians. And even though he was harsh with them, he loved them. I don't see the word love used anywhere here, but when he says, you know, open your hearts to us. We open our hearts to you. And uh, you could just see and feel the love that he had for them. And, and then so concerned that they wouldn't receive Titus, but yet they did receive Titus' message from him. And, and they received both him and Titus, and, and they were even zealous to get restored to him. Um, just the great relief of having a relationship restored like that. Now, like I said, there's not any doctrine taught here and no admonitions for us to follow, but I think there's an example that we learn from. Um, and the example that we learn from is that tough love wins. If we're open and honest with people in relationships, I think we end up with a healthier relationship. And having good relationships with people is... Uh, and restoring a relationship that has gone wrong is hard work. I think you can see that. The emotional effort that's put into this and uh, the effort of sending a message, writing letters. But Paul worked at it. 
he didn't just say, oh, well, and blow them off. He worked at keeping the relationship open. He worked at being honest with them, letting them know how he felt. He was humble. He didn't scold them. Um, you know, he confronted them. And I don't think anybody here probably enjoys confrontation. I know I hate confronting people about things. And sometimes I avoid doing that. Um, and probably most of us, or all of us, hate confrontation. It's not an easy thing to do. But sometimes it's a part of love, and we call it tough love when we tell people something they need to hear. Uh, but we tell it in a loving way. It's, it's still love. You, know, you can tell something, you can tell a person that they're doing the wrong thing in a tough way, in a bad way, so that they feel shamed or, or unnecessarily guilty or hopeless. Or you can tell them in a loving way where they know that they have your love and God's love and that you'll support them and help them as much as you can. And that's what I would call tough love. Um, but in this case, Paul's tough love wins and restores the relationship with them. To him, the relationship with the Corinthians was worth it. He could have blown them off. He could have said, oh, they're just a problem church. They're going the wrong way. They're listening to the wrong people. They're indulging themselves in all these sinful practices. There's no hope for them. I'm not going to get messed up with that. I'm not going to spend my time, my energy on them. He could have just done that and dismissed them. But he decided to do the hard work of restoring a relationship. They were import that important to him. But I think more so Paul knew that they were that important to God. And I think, that, I think it helps us to have this as an example when we think of the relationships that we have with people, that they're important relationships, first because God brought that person or persons or group into our lives, and so God must have felt it was important for us to have that relationship to begin with. And then, secondly, we remember that that person or that group um, that we might not be getting along with is also important to God, and God cares about them. And that should cause us to have a different attitude towards them. Um, and then a third thing that we might not be thinking about too often is when we have conflict with other Christians, we have to remember something, that we're going to be living with them forever in heaven. We're going to live, if we're going to live, live in heaven with someone forever, why not start getting along with them here on earth? Or at least trying to, because some people, some people are impossible. But why not try to get along with somebody here on earth? And if it takes tough love, uh, we can trust God to have our backs in that and to use our words, our attitude, and to restore that relationship. If we hope all things or hope for the best um, out of love, uh, I think sometimes we'll see good results, pray for the person, and and that relationship can be restored. Not always, I understand the realities of life, because that always doesn't happen. But I think you'd be surprised that even over time, sometimes family members that you get crossways with or friends you get crossways with, sometimes come back around. And um, I'm thinking of a situation, a friend of mine who was a pastor, he had a terrible time in his church in the Midwest that he was pastoring. It was mainly because of one man in the church who caused him such a problem that he just had to leave the church. And a very contentious relationship. My friend wasn't being contentious. The man was. In years 
years and years later, he was visiting his parents in that area or something, and he, he met with the man, and the man took him out to lunch and said, look, I just want to apologize for you. I didn't, didn't treat you right all, that, all those years, and God showed me that I was wrong. And so he was vindicated, and the relationship was restored. Now, he had moved on to another church, but um, that's the way it goes sometimes. Maybe I'll just end with something that I'll, you know, my mother would, would always say to us when we were raising our children, she says, just love them and keep the communication open. And that's what I tell my children now, that they have children. Love them and keep the communication open. And no matter what they do, no matter what they say, and sometimes I would get crossways with my mother, but... She always loved me, and she always kept the communication open. She'd always call, even when I didn't feel like talking to her because I was angry about something. She'd always call and check up on things. And, um, and her love, her love won and everything, you know, was fine. Uh, our relationship has, all, you know, we, with that little glitches has always been good. And uh, that's just good advice from my mother, good advice, uh, I think, from the scriptures. Is, Love people, open your hearts to them, be honest with them. Trust God to change their hearts. Um, tough love can win. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace@gracelife.org. at gracelife.org. See you next time.